internet friends, and welcome back to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life in that order. And uh, Andy, uh, it's for, for, for those of you out there, I believe you're going to be hearing this in March. So to give all of you some context for our mental space right now, it's late January, our government is shut down. It's cold as balls outside, and and what 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 else? What what are what are, what are other touchstones? I just got done watching a video of uh, Senator Michael Bennett just ripping Ted Cruz apart mm-hmm. on C-SPAN, which is just I feel like whatever the context of your situation, that's just an evergreen joy just to see someone rip into Ted Cruz. Like it's just delightful, and his beard looks stupid. Yeah, you know. So um, Roger Stone was arrested yesterday, and that was enjoyable even if the bastard got out on bail almost instantly to highlight how cold it is it's cold in orlando and if it's cold in orlando that means it's near frozen hellscape everywhere else i will say on a happy note that we are three episodes into the new season of brooklyn 99 and that is just delightful there you go so i will i will i will take my joys where i can get them andrew i hear you man we are almost done with the assassination of Giovanni Versace on Netflix. Oh. And how, how is that? I've heard good things. It's it's amazing. Like American Crime Story is top notch. It's a phenomenal television series. I think it's better than American Horror Story because it doesn't fall into the same story tropes every season. Mm-hmm. Darren Chris plays a phenomenal psychopath like his 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 portrayal of andrew kunanen is terrifying in a good way i very highly recommend okay i've been giving ryan murphy shit for years i assume he's attached to this right like american crimes okay yeah because i know i I haven't seen any of american horror story honestly because after glee i was so burned out on his style i guess and which is funny because glee is the least ryan murphy of all the ryan murphy shows but i remember watching nip tuck until i got bored of it (laughs) i remember watching glee until i got bored of it and i'm just like i don't want to watch ryan murphy try and do horror i that just that just sounds sucky but (laughs) i don't know i've heard good things about this about the assassination of donatella versace so i'm donatella versace that's wrong (laughs) <laughs> whatever no i've heard good things i just hmm. it's it's very good maybe I've, at some point i very much enjoyed the people vs oj i thought that was okay a great season of television and the assassination of gianni versace is a great follow-up so yeah i've been enjoying that with mo okay we have started watching sex education which is British Netflix show starring Asa Butterfield and Gillian Anderson. And it is, if you like Big Mouth, you will love Sex Education. I I am convinced. Like, because it's, I mean, it's live action. It's it's a little more straightforward, but it's also like a high, it's a high school sex farce that understands actual, like, mental health and sexual dynamics. Like, the whole premise is Gillian Anderson's a sex therapist and Asa Butterfield is her son who's got his own repressed issues going on and through a roundabout way he kind of becomes his school's sex therapist hmm. for all the little high school oh, children man. with their sex problems. Oh, no. And it's 
kind of delightful. Like, and, and it, it, I mean, it's charming. It's weird because, like, Asa Butterfield, and I'm sitting here going, like, oh, you were in Hugo, and I know nothing else you've ever done. And now you're 16, and I'm watching you pretend to masturbate. Like, it's, <laughs> I'm not selling it well, but it's really good. Like, we're a couple of episodes in. You had me at Big Mouth and Jillian Anderson, so. Oh, let's go, let's go. I'm coming, I'm coming. Not yet. That's why we gotta get to the bathroom, sweetheart. That's fair. I mean, we didn't, we couldn't tell it was Jillian Anderson at first, because she's kind of got this weird, her hair is completely different. She's playing the character super different from any other character I've ever seen of hers. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's charming. It's really charming. All right. Well, there are your uh, Netflix hmm. recommendations for the week. <laughs> there are your Netflix recommendations for shit that has, at the time of your listening to this, stuff that has been on Netflix for like three, four months at this point. <laughs> eh, se- seven weeks ish. I think that's I think that's how far back we are. But yeah, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. No, nobody comes to us for timely that's takes. True. You ready to get started? Yeah. Speaking of untimely takes, I would like to talk about my favorite eighteen-year-old rock band today. Okay, you have my attention. Yeah. Um, so, I like how you've read the title has just become sort of like a bit line for us. I, at least I see it as one, but you've read the title. You know I'm talking about Coheed and Cambria. And if you mm-hmm. are someone who is unaware of what Coheed and Cambria even is, and you're expecting me to talk about some weird like folk duo, uh, allow me to enlighten your perceptions Cohen Cambria is a prog metal is what I would describe them as a progressive rock metal band that formed all the way back in 2001 and they are my favorite contemporary band you know we've talked about the doors we've talked about Bowie we've talked about like titans of yesteryear I think this is the first music group that is contemporary and is is still uh, active right now uh andy have you forgotten the very roundabout discussion we had about nickelback way oh, at the beginning of this podcast you're right you're right you're right you're right okay yeah well this is the first one we've talked about positively <laughs> <laughs> i mean the nickelback discussion wasn't overly negative it was more just shitting on people who stupidly shit on nickelback that's true it was it was a defense look at this photograph yeah and i mean oh oh, and i mean even there that was a band that started in like 95 so yeah it's another super old ass band um but please continue coed and cambria yeah so coed and cambria just to give a little bit of a, of a background, they actually kind of sort of formed all the way back in 1995, the same year as Nickelback, we're, we're deciding. I assume you know that as fact. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just remember terrible specifics. Like, I there's, there's probably, like, tricks to long division that I've forgotten just because I remember the year The Lost Boys came out, and I'm really good at Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Like... There, there's useful stuff I could probably know. Eh. Stick with the pop culture. Eh. <laughs> yeah, that works. Anyway. Okay, so it started in 95. Yeah, they kind of sort of started in 95 when uh, the band's frontman, Claudio Sanchez, 
and lead guitarist Travis Stever formed their own group called Beautiful Loser. And over the next six years, they sort of went through a revolving door of other bandmates and changed the band name a couple of times and tried to figure out what they were going to do until in 2001, they formally debuted as Coheed and Cambria with bassist Michael Todd and drummer Josh Eppard. Okay. And it's so interesting to look back at this. I I did not get into Coheed in 2001. I don't think a whole lot of people did. I was I was getting into them around 2008-ish, my sophomore junior time in high school. But from their very mm-hmm. first album, even from really their first EP, they started doing something that I find incredibly unique. Now, Alex, you know what a concept album is. And yes. I think most people know what a concept album is. For anyone who doesn't, it's uh, it's it's a story. It is it is usually a rock, or not even rock, but it is a musical album set to music. But it is different from a musical. Yeah, I I feel like I should mention here a concept album doesn't necessarily need to be narrative. Generally speaking, it's just where the album, it might tell a story, it might be um, several different songs on a particular theme, but it's grouped together so that the album functions as a cohesive unit. Sure, yeah, that's a that's a much better and, explanation. Yeah, because I mean, there's there's concept, of, like, there's Operation Mindcrime by Queensryche. Yeah. That's an absolutely a story album. Like, it tells a story. But then there's also an album like Damn by Kendrick Lamar. Really, all of Kendrick Lamar's albums after Section 80 are concept albums. They're all geared around a theme. Good Kid, Mad City is about, you know, trying to be, trying to maintain a sense of sanity and morality inside a place and environment that doesn't allow you to. To Pimp a Butterfly is, you know, uh, about trying to touch back on previous influences and honor them in a way that is both progressive and moves everything forward, but also holds that intact. And damn is variations on mental health. Like, and each song is labeled as such. I'm getting off topic, but the point is concept <laughs> albums are just basically, <laughs> I am so sorry. It's all right. In Coheed's case, these are definitely narrative concept yeah, albums. Yeah, and, and, and when, I, when I think of concept albums, I tend to think of narrative albums. I think about uh, The Who's Tommy, which is a concept mm. album and a musical. Uh, I think about Operation yeah. Mind Crime. And so, you know, from their very first albums, Coheed not only decided that they were going to do concept albums, but that they were going to be a concept band. All of Coheed's songs for at least the first eight, nine years of their existence, all of their first five albums were all a part of the same story. And that is the story of the Amory Wars universe. And it is all thought up and created by Claudio Sanchez. And like, I, I, I really want to beat people over the head. Every single song over the first five albums and really every single song on every single album, save one takes place in the same narrative universe. 
And I love that. I don't know what it is about concept albums. I think I enjoy the narrative through lines and references to plot events within other songs in later songs. There's just maybe it's the musical theater guy in me. And I just I like my rock or uh, I keep saying rock, but I I like my uh, my my music to be a little bit more musical i don't know but i love concept Mm. albums so much and a big part of the reason why coheed is my favorite band is because of their commitment and the creative ways that over the majority of 18 years they have been able to stick to the concept sure and i mean you're you're a fan of musical theater you're also a fan of comic books that's true and not even and, and even setting aside what I'm sure we'll get into in as far as Claudio Sanchez's um, digressions in that particular field, what are comic books if not overarching narratives to contained universes? Sure. We have movies planned for the bad guy. You mean like Suicide Squad? Yes. Suicide Squad sucked. It's it's music that play I'm sorry, this is music that feels very tailor made particularly to you also to me like in a lot of ways so i uh i i get it i get why you're so invested and such a fan for 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 anyone who is is new to this band and is hearing about them for the first time the rest the reason alex says that is not only like it would be one thing if all of coheed's music was based around a single story and it was like a regular universe or like some sort of something that takes place on earth some 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 contemporary story no the amory wars takes place in its own sci-fi star wars adventure universe that is completely mm-hmm. separate from our own and you know has the the given random sci-fi tropes of yes everyone's human but they're not human don't worry about it there yes there's space travel yes there's lasers yes there's monsters yes there's genetic engineering it is it is a very sci-fi it is a very comic book story to the point you you had mentioned before this story has branched out from more than just music to the point where there is an entire comic series called The Amory Wars, and it's based off of them. I'm, I'm looking at the first two volumes on my bookshelf right now. Claudio has written a book about what is the fifth studio album, but technically the first part of the story, Year of the Black Rainbow, that has been written into a book with the help of Peter David, who is a very famous comic book writer. Mm-hmm. This story has... has branched out and expanded and just kind of shot out of Claudio Sanchez's head like his insane curly mane of hair that he is infamous for. (laughs) (laughs) Do yourself a treat. If if you're unfamiliar, look up Claudio Sanchez because you really need to see what I'm talking about here. (laughs) Can, Can I just say my favorite photos of Claudio Sanchez are th- this randomly happens in like interviews or like moments in a concert where he will tie his hair back and he will put on very thick rimmed yeah, glasses and it's fucking charming as hell <laughs> because it's still like he's got a it still looks like he's got a chinchilla in a noose on the back yeah. of his head but he's got these like little little like 
I'm Q in the new James Bond movie's glasses, and he's playing an acoustic guitar, and it's just like, oh, everything wants to be released here, <laughs> and it won't be. It's still there, waiting. It got to the point, he is so famous for his hair, like, he cut it once in, I want to say, 2011, and beyond that, he's just known for the giant mane of hair, um... Like like two three months ago, he posted a couple pictures on Instagram where his hair was carefully like shaped, and he picked the right angle so that it looked like he had just taken all of his hair off, and people were ready to riot. It was it was a big deal. That's how famous <laughs> he is for his hair. Yeah, I mean, do you remember when Metallica cut their hair off? Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a day. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that was right around the time that Coheed debuted. Yeah. So, yeah. so I I love Coheed because of the commitment to storytelling. It is mm-hmm. it is such a treat for me to be able to read the Coheed comic books and pick out references and. I would enjoy it even more if there were like an abundance of lyrics that wind up being spoken dialogue. They're not, he's not that, uh, I guess, hokey with it, but that would, that be, a would be a problem. I know I can, I, I, I can't objectively admit that, but it, it's a, it's, it's a treat to be able to pick together these references and, and just, just continue to flush out the story. I love the story. I love the storytelling of it all. But that's not the only reason Coheed is great. Coheed right. has a nearly 20-year-long career at this point, and it is very well-deserved because they are musically brilliant, and they can shred your face off. Here's the part that I wanted to get into. Yeah, totally. I think the most famous song and, and you play the first couple notes of this. And I think most people will instantly be able to recognize it, but their, their opus, their, their free bird, if you will, is the song. Welcome home. Which is off their third or fourth studio third third studio third album, album. Third it's album. good it's good apollo i'm burning star four that's which right might be my favorite of their albums it's mine it's it's my favorite of the first five at least okay and i mean they're just they it yeah it would be one thing if if claudio sanchez was a brilliant storyteller but he you know used that as a crutch for his own musical talents the man is a musical genius the man is brilliant with a guitar can play most of the instruments in his band and is committed to this fast paced prog sound. And it's just so fun. And the best, I mean, he's not even the best guitarist in Coheed because Travis Stever is the, the, is the lead guitarist for, for as famous as Claudio is for walking out there with double neck fender, like he's not even the best guitarist in his own band. Kohi, I will, I will just say, like, you ever played a double neck guitar? I've not. <laughs> they're actually awful. Like, <laughs> they're terrible instruments. They are 
awful instruments to play. They're heavy, they're awkward. I hated it. I played one in a store once and I was just like, this is the worst. This is the neither of these are good guitars. So I have two meh guitars just strapped <laughs> to myself. That's neither here nor there. He does like to come out with a double neck guitar a la Jimmy Page and it's fine. But like yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean it's you got to be a fan of rock of course to really appreciate their music. But even even saying that, I can I can think of several different songs that kind of try to break out of the rock vibe and go to a more pop sensibility, um, especially in the last couple of albums. Claudio, who is the lead songwriter as well as just like the story writer, has really tried to break out and differentiate his music in that way. I mean, to to break it down. Really, out of the original members, Claudio, Travis, Michael Todd, and Josh Eppard, Josh Eppard is a phenomenal drummer. And, like, I, I have to try to get into the minutia of his playing, but the man can do a counterbeat like no one's business. And Michael Todd is a fine bassist. He's actually probably the most problematic part of the band because he famously is the one who really fell into the rock star lifestyle and tried to hold up a Walgreens and got kicked out of the band because of it. Yes. And that's such a, that's such a great story just on its own. It's terrible. It's tragic. It's horrible that he did that. It was wrong. And it's a really fucking good story. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, it is. It's it, cause because because Walgreens is the key word there. The man the man held up a pharmacy, not not anything more substantial, not anything more illustrious. I mean, the guy was doing a lot of drugs and figured I can expedite the process by getting them over the counter with a shotgun instead of money. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Happens. Yeah, you know. Goldman. Oh my God! What are you doing? Give me your money. Here, here. Just take this jar for the leukemia kids. I don't give it to them anyhow. But uh, all <laughs> that to say, his replacement Zach Cooper, who has been in the band ever since his um, his exile, Michael Todd's exile from the band, is is just a great basis. Like they're 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 not Queen level good, where each member is just a penultimate master of the craft. I would argue that Claudio and Travis are masters of the guitar, but they just have such a such a sound, such a unique sound, even when they're trying to play pop, even when they're slowing it down and going more acoustic. They have a very clearly defined sound. I will say, um, as a guitarist and a bassist, there are really clear influences in how they play. Um I would definitely argue there's a there's a super obvious uh, Led Zeppelin influence in both the guitars. Slightly less obvious, uh, particularly in the soloing. There's a clear Alex Lifeson reference. They like a lot of the same kind of scale riffing that Alex Lifeson from Rush likes to use. Yeah, and I mean you know talking about contemporary stuff. These guys are 
only five ten ish years older than we are at this point they they grew up listening to the the same uh bands that we've loved from the 80s and 90s yeah yeah definitely um one thing that i will definitely give them is their so you touch on their ability to kind of blend these genres what i would say and and i'll and i'll be up front to everyone i'm a coheed fan i'm not a fan like andy's a fan um but i know the first five albums and i what was claudio sanchez's side project prizefighter inferno yes the prizefighter inferno which i'm go go ahead and talk about it i <laughs> i equally love the prizefighter inferno cuz it's this fucking electronic folk jam and it's so good please please talk about <laughs> well no i was just going to say like my my so my experience with the band is um I did Prizefighter Inferno only do one album because I only know one of their albums. They did one album and they did a five song EP. Okay, I've not heard that EP, but in my experience with the six albums of material uh, of and adjacent to this band, they're kind of every like you say, Prizefighter Inferno is like it's 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 like if Phil Oaks, the folk singer had access to EDM software. Yeah. Like, that's probably the best, like, because it, and not just because of what it's writing about, but also, like, just the musical sensibilities. It's very easy to follow melodically in terms of the vocal, but holy shit, is the music ever just, like, playing with every angle of that electronica sound? And I don't think it would work in Coheed. I like that it's a different project. I think that that makes it that allows it to function kind of devoid of the I don't want to use this word, but it's the best word I have, the limitations mm. of a of rock and metal instrumentation. But that said, those same instruments that allow this Zeppelin-like composition on a song like Welcome Home you know, you can do very, very poppy. The, the first song that comes to my mind is a juxtaposition, and I always love comparing these two as like, you can tell these are the same band, but also, holy shit, nothing here is quite the yeah. same. Is I, I like comparing a song like Welcome Home with uh, Blood Red Summer, sure. which is a totally, like if you listen to Blood Red Summer and you didn't, automatically know it was Coheed and Cambria, like, that could slide in nicely as, like, oh, this is a band that's opening for Weezer yeah. next week. Like... <laughs> it, it's... It, but it, the thing is, as soon as you hear that it's Coheed and Cambria. If you go in knowing it's Coheed and Cambria, you're like, oh, okay, I recognize that vocal. I recognize the way that that bass is interplaying with the guitar there. The drums, I think you're, I think you're smart to key in on the drums being a really characteristic part of that Coheed sound because I, there was a period of time where, actually on the recommendation of the other Coheed super fan in my life, which is our friend Chris, I listened to a shit ton of Coheed and Avenged Sevenfold. Mm. 
one like like for for a punctuated period of time i listened to nothing but those two bands with real intention on listening to the drums because chris is a drummer sure. and he loves both of these bands and he would talk up the drumming in these bands so i was like okay let me let me give this a listen and you're right it's not just technical ability yes both drummers in both of those bands are technically incredible but they have a really really distinct style unto themselves and i can't name many drummers who are like that especially nowadays right like, i don't want to be all i don't want to be all like music sucks right now whatever but like i could tell roger taylor's drumming because i'd listen to a shit ton of queen like i could tell john bonham's drumming from led zeppelin and i can tell the i i can't name the drummer in coed in cambria i know you said it i know the old drummer from avenge sevenfold was called the rev because that's just a funny name and it makes but it's not even the weirdest name in that yeah. band that would go to sinister gates but um it's a distinct style and it's hard for me to point at what exactly is so distinct about it but i know it when i hear it you know it's and, and i think that's the best thing you can ask for in any musician but especially in a drummer just because drums can sound so generic a lot of the time yeah i mean especially in the modern era like i'm trying to think like yeah you've got josh Shepard from coheed you've got the rev from avenge sevenfold I, I can't remember his real name and you've got andy from fallout boy and he's like the only other modern era drummer i can think of who has like a distinction to his play style yeah and even and uh, is that that's um Nah, I forgot his last name, Andy something. But Hurley, even the dude, yeah. huh? Hurley, maybe I don't know, something like that. But even him, like I listen to his drumming, and I'm like, okay, I love your drumming. Your drumming is fantastic, and I can also tell that you listen to a shit ton of the Sex Pistols and Quincy Jones albums. Like <laughs> I know your influences, dude. Like it's obvious. You're a huge Michael Jackson fan. You're a huge British punk fan. And you kind of blended these things together, and also you probably listened to a lot of Rick Allen from Def Leppard. Like, I, I, I don't know. His his style is less distinct to me, but I, I don't think I've ever listened to Fall Out Boy specifically for the distinction of the drum patterns. Sure. Whereas I could sit down with a Coheed album and just throw my headphones on and just go, all right, I'm going to put all my attention into the drums on this. <laughs> and I will have a sensory experience with it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I want to start wrapping up and just kind of rapid fire a bunch of points. At one point you were talking about the juxtaposition between two different sounds. And if there's anybody who's like been really into what we're talking about, but is not familiar with Coheed, I want you to go to their second album in keeping secrets of silent Earth three and listen to the song Al the Killer, and it's immediately followed by A Favor House Atlantic. Listen to those two songs back to back, and you will clearly understand what we're trying to talk about with how these guys can can change different styles. Because Al the Killer is this brutal, crunchy, screamer, like, death jam and Favor House Atlantic is is pure pop. I love Prize Fighter Inferno. Funny enough, the one full album of Prize Fighter Inferno also has ties to the rest of the main storyline. Like I just can't get over how Claudio tied almost every piece of music he ever wrote 
narratively into the same narrative pool. Like not their latest album, but the one before that, the color before the sun, that is the one Coheed album that is not a concept album. And they kind of did it just to be like, Hey, just so you know, we, we can do this. We are capable of not doing a concept album. Okay. You happy with that? Okay. We're diving back into the space opera. Yeah. I mean, I love Coheed. I love them so much. I'm, I'm staring at the shrine of collectors level Coheed stuff that I have amassed over the years. I, I drew their, the band symbol, the keywork, which is the series of circles through a triangle. I drew that on my graduation cap. I got that tattooed on my arm. Like mm-hmm. I've, I've talked about how I want to get a Bowie tattoo. I have a Coheed tattoo. <laughs> this band, I, I, I have to thank my lovely wife, my amazing wife for, kind of forcing me to listen to the first couple songs I ever heard way back in high school and just unlocking this, this great, great, great thing in my life. This thing that I love, this thing that I play probably once every two weeks at at minimum. This is a Mm -hmm. phenomenal band. This is a phenomenal rock band. If, if, if you're a rock fan and you're not familiar I I can't recommend them highly enough. Yeah, I'm with you. And and I will just say there I can totally believe that there are people who are listening to this who sound mildly interested in Coheed but might just like just like people who are mildly interested in getting into comic books are sitting here going, I don't know if I can handle, you know, a 5-6 album story or what if I don't get it or anything like that. And to all of you I will say, look, you don't have to. Yeah. I, I, Coheed, I am a Coheed fan, and it took me years to actually be able to follow any of this story in terms of the lyrics of the songs, and I spent those years vastly enjoying the songs on their own merits. These are good songs unto themselves. You can take them as self, self-enclosed entities and enjoy them thoroughly if you have any interest in any of the myriad genres that we just talked about Coheed touching in or playing in. Um, I highly recommend, like, start start with their early stuff and work through those, those first few albums. I do think it's a solid experience. And don't stress if you don't get this giant overarching narrative or big story. It's good music on its own, even outside of that. Yeah, I would agree. That's 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 a great um, way to put it. I mean, the the final thought is these guys. This is one of the only bands I know of still working that can put out a nine minute long song, and it's still actually good. <laughs> so yeah, give give, a- give it give it a, give it a taste. Check out uh, check out the 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 classic stuff, and and if you are trepidatious about the whole concept album thing check out their album the color before the sun which is their non-concept album and that'll give you a kind of an idea of the sound if you want a more contemporary version without trying to deal with sci-fi space pirates and stuff yeah and i mean i i'm gonna tell i think i might have mentioned this to you at one point andy i don't i don't know if i did but um 
I'll usually throw on something on you, a couple of YouTube videos while I eat lunch at work. And a couple times in the last, I don't know, a few months, I've found full length Coheed concerts, like 45 minute sets on YouTube, just available. Feel free to throw one of those on, you know, they don't, they don't like tell you the story between the songs or anything. It's just a concert. They go up there, they play a bunch of songs for 45 minutes and they're great. They are terrific songs. They're fun band to watch. They're really impressive musically. They're a great live act. Um, I've heard. I haven't seen them. You have. I've seen them, I want to say six times. I've seen them more than any other band except for Christian rock group Skillet. And the only reason I've seen Skillet more is because they would come to Orlando every October for like a solid decade. And me and my dad would just go. So, yes, they are amazing live. (laughs) okay yeah so i uh i recommend that if nothing else you know throw it on in the background like while you're doing something just put on a coheed concert and just start that way that that could be a really really non-threatening way to do this beautiful awesome well cool uh you know i hate to leave but we must or else i'm gonna just talk about this for another 15 minutes let's get into the (laughs) (laughs) um Thank you for bringing up Skillet, by the way, because that's <laughs> a very uh, – it allows me to make what is the most awkward transition <laughs> of all time. No, it's it's not. Skillet's fine. Maybe one day we'll talk about Christian rock. No, okay, no, not getting into that. All right. Those of you uh, who read our title and find the uh, title of our hate to be confusing, stick with us a few minutes – I promise I'm going to kind of demystify this and get into specifics. Just follow me. I think this is going to be a really good discussion. So, Andy, I'm going to ask you um, just to kind of intro our way into this kind of noodly topic. Andy, tell me, in your experience, I, I, I I don't know if you have spent as much time as I have analyzing, you know, all of these cultural touchstones and varying terminology on the discourse of contemporary atheism in American culture, or if you're happy. I assume you're happy. Uh, So I'm going to just ask you, and if this is, if there's any part of this that you don't know, I assume our audience might not know it. So I'm going to just ask you, if I were to ask you to define for me the difference between a theist, an agnostic, an atheist, and an anti-theist. How would you disseminate those four things? Sure. So I will say I I do consider myself happy. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like, Andy? What's it like? Uh, it, it's great when you can convince yourself. Anyway, um, I would presume that a theist is a person who believes in God or believes in a god, a specific god, a, a person with a religion and a belief. An agnostic is somebody who does not believe in a god, but believes in the concept that there is a higher power or a god, even if they do not subscribe to necessarily the Christian god or Muhammad or or any 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 specific religion's deity. An atheist 
is someone who does not believe in the existence of God or a higher power. And I got to tell you, I don't know if I've ever heard of what an anti- uh, Anti-theist? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever heard specifically what an anti-theist is. So I'm completely in the dark on that one. Okay. And that is completely fair. Because you, Andy, like a happy person, have not delved into this shit. (laughs) So, your report card, you did pretty decent. I passed! Oh, man! I gotta do this! I'm gonna graduate! A theist, in simple terms, is someone who believes in some kind of uh, divine being. Sure. Or beings. You can be a monotheist, you can be a polytheist, but theist. An eight, uh, an agnostic is someone who does not actively believe in divine beings, but is, but, but subscribes to the idea that we can't know, it's impossible to know, so is basically open to it, but, you know, doesn't actively believe in it. An atheist is someone who actively does not believe in any divine beings, sure. has, has a lack of belief. Uh, and an anti-theist is someone who is actively against the notion of okay. belief in divine beings, not just personally, but globally. Okay, that makes sense from how the uh, from how the word is constructed. That makes that makes that makes sense. From the concept of Latin roots, I bring you the term anti-theist. <laughs> so, the title of this hate section is new atheism. To people who have, uh, again, are happy, it might sound kind of weird that I'm saying a term like new atheism, but it actually refers to something very, very specific. Uh, So to define it shortly, new atheism, which is a term coined in 2006 by journalist and agnostic Gary Wolf, it's a term it's a term loosely applied to a sprawling but recognizable branch of atheistic thought and activism arising in the 21st century. I need to be careful in my terminology here because atheism, no capital letter, just just that particular ism again is just a person who lacks a belief in any deity. I myself am an atheist. I I don't believe in any divine beings. New Atheism, capital N, capital A, is this very particular branch movement of atheist thought that is a bunch of assholes, basically. (laughs) Uh, What I have encountered in my life uh, since, since, you know, taking on atheism, which uh, for me occurred when I was about 17 years old. So that's about 12 years ago. Let's call it 2007-ish. Just just to ballpark it. I don't have exact dates. Where I, I didn't use the term atheist to describe myself for a long time, not because I disliked the term in and of itself, but because when I told people that I was an atheist, they looked at me like I was an asshole. Some of that is uh, real atheist bias, which is a real thing um, that I'm not going to dive deeply into, but it does inform some of this. And some of it is what these fuckwads have done. So the most famous faces of new atheism, uh, and some of you may recognize some, if not all of these names, are biologist Richard Dawkins, philosopher and neuroscientist Sam Harris, philosopher Daniel Dennett, and the late writer Christopher Hitchens. 
Uh, the four of them are collectively known, were collectively known as the Four Horsemen of the Non-Apocalypse, which is just good branding. Yeah, I have to no, admit, that's, that's good great. branding. Ayan Hirsi Ali, who is uh, an activist and public thinker, and uh, scientist Lawrence Krauss, who has since kind of fallen out of favor due to a whole bunch of sex scandals. So people don't talk to talk about him as much, but for a long time, he was kind of up Like there. you do. I've heard of Richard Dawkins. That is... That is okay. the one name I recognize. Do you just recognize him from that episode of South Park with him? <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I do now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's a real problematic episode of South Park about Richard Dawkins. Um, and if I'm a monkey, then I might as well act like a monkey, huh? <laughs> Which is interesting, but um, I'm not going to dive into that one. But I like. All this sorry, is... I, I don't mean to interrupt. No, you're good, please. Please. I like that you took the time to explain these people's professions because it. I think that's important, and I think that is telling that this is a collective of men of science, biologists, scientists, but also you, there were more than a couple philosophers in there. And I feel like people who lean towards philosophy and especially the ones that make a name for themselves as pushing these new ideas of thought as well as men of science not blanket statement but i think you know what i mean um tend to lean away from christian christian faith but but faith as a whole as well yeah that i mean that's absolutely true there's if you're looking specifically at people who have scientist uh in one form or another in their job description in their career title um whether you know they're a biologist an ichthyologist a geologist an astrophysicist which is what i believe lawrence krauss was very few of them subscribe to any religious belief and particularly to christianity that's 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 just a statistical truth I think the last time I think I read the number was something like 97 or 98 percent of people of scientists consider themselves non-theistic, which might mean they're atheists, might mean they're agnostics, might mean they're anti-theists. But the point is, they are not theists. Sure. So, yeah, I, I do think that's important to notate there, because in some spots there, you know, philosophy, philosophy was definitely a realm where atheistic thought could exist in a way that it didn't in general society, you know. So does this theory of evolution necessarily mean that there is no God? No, of course not. It just says that God is an impotent nothing from nowhere with less power than the undersecretary of agriculture. Bertrand Russell was writing about atheism, you know, in the late 19th, early 20th century. He was a philosopher, you know. Nietzsche, who I don't... Nietzsche was not, I don't think Nietzsche was an atheist. Uh, I think Nietzsche was probably more of an agnostic. You know, a lot of people talk about Nietzsche saying, quote, God is dead, um, which is uh, a very stupid misquotation because he did not say that in terms of like, there is no God. He said that in terms of we are becoming an, a more and more a religious society. He was, he, he said that in context of, we're not talking about, we're not doing religion as much anymore. Religion is less and less important to society functioning 
And I don't think at the time that he was writing that was an untruth. But, you know, people don't like context. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a good uh, it's it's more good PR if you're using it wrong. Yeah, basically. So. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, mentioning that these guys are a lot of these guys are philosophers. I, I think that that's notable. You know, Dawkins, before any of this came out, I feel like I, I'm going to get into where new atheism started in a minute, but. The early seeds of it started with an early Dawkins book after he had, you know, written some biology texts. He was really upset about the teaching of creationism because he was like, creationism is non-scientific and it's being taught in science classes and this is a problem. So he wrote a book called The Blind Watchmaker, which was basic, which was not an argument against religion. I've read The Blind Watchmaker. He doesn't make, he doesn't hide the fact that he is non-religious but the blind watchmaker is an argument against creationism as a thing to be taught in schools. And, and, and he wrote that, I think, back in the late 60s. You know? So that was kind of a precursor to all of this. But yeah, I mean, right there, that, that was Dawkins just being like, yo, biologist here, like scientist, I don't think you should teach creationism in schools because it's not valid science. If you want to teach it in religion class, K, but don't teach it in science class because it's not science, which I'm not mad at. Like, I didn't get mad at Dawkins. I wasn't alive back then, but I wouldn't (laughs) have been mad at that notion. Like, I'm mad at the stuff that's to come, you know? So to get kind of back on track, um, so New Atheism, the movement, basically, it it arguably started in 2004 uh, with Sam Harris, who... I should reiterate, he's a neuroscience and a philo- he's a neuroscientist and a philosopher. Checks both boxes. Yes, he did both. And he very clearly he's up he's been up front like talking about his own personal history where he said, "I studied these things because I was interested in I was interested in religion as a concept, as a societal concept, but also as a neurological experience." Okay. And yeah. So he came out with a book in 2004 called The End of Faith. Which was basically one of these tomes, like what would come, Richard Dawkins' uh, The God Delusion, and Chris, Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, How Religion Poises Everything, which are these tomes that are basically arguments against the existence of religion, and actively trying to make an argument that religion is a, if not the, definitive evil in society responsible for more suffering than pretty much anything else full disclosure i should mention here uh that last one i i just said uh god is not great how religion poisons everything the christopher hitchens book that book is sitting on my bookshelf right now it's 20 feet away from me and it is possibly the most annotated book in my entire collection i i very early on in my atheism drank a lot of this cooler sure. okay you know because i was because i because i approached my atheism in the early days the way a lot of people kind of approach their atheism in the early days especially if you grow up religious which was i was very like yo fuck all of this this is this has caused this misery for me this is terrible i can't believe that i was brainwashed into this i can't believe this you know i grew up catholic a lot of what pushed me over the edge in terms of my irreligiosity, apart from the fact that I just didn't philosophically agree with this stuff, was learning about the history 
of Catholicism, which is a dark and stormy tome, I will tell you. But yeah, like I still have this book. This book is sitting on my bookshelf right now. One of the time, I I felt very self-conscious at one point because my in-laws were visiting and I saw my father-in-law, who is an elder at his Presbyterian church, looking at my, just casually looking through our books, just like, oh, okay. And like, I got novels and and other nonfiction up there and cookbooks and all manner of stuff. And I'm fairly certain I saw him glance at that book and then walk away. (laughs) I'm not, it's not prominently displayed or anything. It's just there, but I, I... I never asked him because I don't want to have that conversation, I don't think. But I felt very self-conscious sure. about that because I'm like, eh, that was 18-year-old Alex, but um, hey. But it's still there, uh, and I haven't gotten rid of it. And there's – I'll be honest. There are things there in that text that I learned a lot from and formed me greatly. And there's a lot of things that are problematic as fuck. Sure. So, even as a theist, even as a – person of faith, specifically Christianity, I can understand that blanket statement at face value and the idea of, oh, take away the Crusades and, oh, if there's no religion, take away the Holocaust, which, side note, I don't actually think is true, but I can can understand why there would be a viewpoint behind that and why that viewpoint would be comforting and in ways attractive to people. And this notion that removing religion would remove many of the most awful atrocities in the world. I was working on a flat tax proposal and I accidentally proved there's no God. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I I get the sentiment. I had the sentiment for a really long time. It's really just the biggest problem with the new atheists is the number of really bad faith arguments that they make. And this, honestly, for lack of a better term, evangelical approach they have to criticizing religion and promoting anti-theism. You know, the I would argue... That in the post 9-11 world, um, and a lot of this did come up kind of as a response to 9-11, I'd argue in the post 9-11 world, Christians are not the most anti-Muslim group, Mm. despite what, you know, a lot of Fox News people will tell you. Sure. Don't get me wrong. There is a deeply problematic anti-Muslim bias in a lot of uh, contemporary Christian rhetoric, but the new atheists are the ones who call Islam a death cult. You know, they're the ones who, you know, make statements about really problematic blanket statements about Islam where they basically treat the worst examples of Islamic fundamentalism as just inherent to the religion. You know, I I mentioned Ayan Hirsi Ali. Uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali, uh, one of the new atheists, is possibly the one I have the least beef with. Uh, now, Ayan Hirsi Ali, her background was, I believe she was born in, I want to say Somalia. Don't quote me on that. But she, apart, she, she suffered from uh, female genital mutilation at a young age for religious reasons. 
uh, and escaped an arranged marriage to go to Scandinavia, where she became a prominent women's rights activist and critic of Islam. And she began, I forget the name of the artist she was working. She was working with a filmmaker on a documentary that, uh, and the individual who she was working with, her partner on this documentary, was murdered by radicals, by Islamic radicals. And they threatened her, and they threatened her life, and she went into hiding. I'm like, okay, I on her Ali. I get why you're upset. I do. And I'm not going to sit here and try and pretend like I have any right to make any deep commentary on her experience. But the fact of the matter is, it's... I, I, I as an atheist, don't want to be represented by these assholes. I talk to Muslims who don't want to be represented by that wing of the religion. And the idea of this kind of blanketing rhetoric, this is the kind of thing that results in mosques getting vandalized, in hate crimes, in ordinary fucking people who just want to practice the religion that they either subscribe to or were raised in or both. Same as, you know, same as you, same as same as my father-in-law who, you know, may or may not have seen that book on my bookshelf. You know, it, this kind of rhetoric is what causes a lot of that problem. I would argue that this particular wing of atheism is even more anti-Muslim than the worst segments of contemporary evangelical Christianity with its anti-Muslim bias. Yeah, it's nobody wants to be associated with the most extreme members of their thing. And yeah. I wouldn't even call it religion because we're talking about the anti-theists as almost the extremist wing of atheism. You know, I don't no no nobody wants to be associated with the bad ones. And that's why I call into question if it's even a question of religion being the problem as much as just this unconscious human capacity to get caught up in this extremism for, for, for whatever it is. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it I I completely I can completely understand your displeasure here and your hate here and not wanting to be lumped in with these guys because no one is sitting here saying actually it was a bunch of antitheists who did that. No, people are 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 saying they're atheists. And I just look, it's hard being an atheist in this country. It is. We have you know, next to, I, I don't, I, I haven't uh, gone through the numbers on the most recently uh, elected Congress as of the last midterms, but I know that prior to that, there were no atheists in Congress. Prior to that, session prior to that, um, there was one. And prior to that, there were two, but one of them was Barney Frank, who only admitted to his atheism after being out of office. And to wit, Barney Frank came out as gay 
in, I believe, the 70s. It was easier for Barney Frank to come out as gay in the 70s hmm. and be a senator than it was for him to come out as an atheist. Yeah. That's a real problem. That is a real distinct problem. The new atheists touch on a lot of real issues that are important to, I hate using the term atheist community, but like to atheist activism. Like they do touch on things that are important to me. You know, I'm anti-circumcision. I'm anti-arranged marriage. I am highly critical of abuses by priests and ministers. I have a problem with prosperity gospels. I would actively stand on a... If I had a kid and I found out they were teaching creationism in a school, holy shit, that PTA would burn to the ground <laughs> with how much misery I would cause them. Because uh. I find that shit unacceptable. We do have an emergency plan in case of a prolonged strike right here. Let's see. <sighs> Replace teachers with superintelligent cyborgs. I don't find that shit unacceptable because I think that... Christianity is a pox on human existence. I find that shit unacceptable because education is important to me. You sure. know? No, absolutely, man. So I... It's already hard enough being an atheist. I don't need assholes. Like, I don't need... I don't need these people giving us a bad name. You know? I, I've... It was only a few years ago, I was visiting my parents, and a couple of my younger cousins were with me. And I say younger, like it makes it sound like they're, you know, little kids. Um, I've known them since they were little kids, but honestly, they're teenagers. And I don't remember how the topic came up, but they said something, one of them said something about praying, and I was like, oh yeah, no, but I don't pray. And he goes, what do you mean you don't pray? And I tell him, oh no, I'm an atheist. And he goes, so you don't believe in God? And I say, yeah. He goes, so you believe in the devil? Yeah. And I'm just kind of like, okay, I'm going to have to re-educate your ass. <laughs> yeah. And he's, and, he's my, and he's my little cousin, and I love him. And I took the time to try and do that for him. But I never disparaged his beliefs. I'm like, if this works for you, that's cool. I'm, And most atheists, in my experience are that level of chill. You know, we're not all Ricky Gervais. Most of us are just kind of like, eh, okay, that's fine. You do you, I'm going to do me. And the entire New Atheist movement, which I feel kind of peaked not that long ago, like in, in the post period, like post 2008, 2009 or so, I feel like there's been an active movement from the rest of atheism to kind of supersede this yeah. uh there's there's a great there's a dude named chris steadman who wrote a book called faithiest um which is his memoir basically of growing up kind of quasi-religious becoming an evangelical losing his religion becoming a new atheist and then chilling out interesting uh yeah and, like, this whole, like, up-and-down situation there. And he, uh, and I think he's the, I think he's the humanist chaplain at Harvard or Yale right now. One of those places. Uh, and he's a writer and he's an activist. And he basically is like, I, I do interfaith activism. 
Like I go into organizations that are coalitions behind, between Jews and Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and people of the Hindu faith and Baha'i and what have you. And I represent the non-theistic wing of that. And I'm committed to the activism that all of these groups are doing. Because they're, I mean, they're interfaith organizations. They're doing things for, like, community building and homeless assistance and medical help and sexual education and all these wonderful, important things. That, and and I, it's funny, because if I did believe in some kind of, you know, divine narrative of my life, or at least if I thought my life was a movie, I think it'd be pretty interesting the fact that my mother had my atheism confirmed to her because she found a copy of Chris Stedman's book on my desk, mm. saw the title and asked me, are you an atheist? And that was the moment that I came out to my mother as an atheist. It was not with the Chris Hitchens book or the Dawkins book or the Harris book or the Ali book or the Dennett book or the PZ Myers book or any of these books by other way more problematic atheists who represented a very angry, dark period of my life. I had all those books. I didn't actively hide them, but I didn't exactly leave them out. Yeah. You know, I was a little more careful because I wasn't out to my mother. I used to say, I used to say, my mother will go to her grave never knowing that I've lost my faith. I used to say that because I was like, it would break her heart. My mother finds Chris Stedman's book, a book that, to me, kind of represents a culmination of my evolution as a human being who no longer is angry at religion, but instead tries to be open-hearted. And that's how she finds out. And I'm pretty sure she cried after, but we're cool now. Sure. You know, I talked to my mom. I talked to my mom yesterday. I gave her the updates on the government shutdown stuff. By the way, every everyone out there. My life might be affected by this government shutdown situation. Details to come. But, you know, I, get, I, I talked to her about it and she said, okay, okay. I know you don't believe in it, but I, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. When I was reading these guys, I never believed my mother would say those words to me. Mm. Now, hey, she told me yesterday. She says it on a regular basis. When... We're in situations where she and her sisters start praying, which occasionally happens when they're all around each other. You know, she looks over at me and is like, are you okay? Like, I never expected any of that stuff. And I would have never had those moments had I continued to act like these motherfuckers. Sure. So, yeah. So I hate new atheism. It's a bunch of bullshit, and I hope it dies soon. And I hope all of these guys go the Lawrence... Well, I hope they don't go the Lawrence Krauss way because then they mean... That means they have more victims, but... <laughs> right. I, I would be a fan of their obscurity. Sure, or even just a conversion away from the extremism. Like, no matter... For, for, for someone who uh, gets up here and talks about their hate every two weeks, I, I think the best solution here would be just to have a little less hate in the world, no matter what your hate's about. I think that was beautiful, Andrew. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you are, you just, just such a, such a wonderful heart. Like <laughs> truly Christ has touched you. I start off by saying I'm happy, man. <laughs> uh, 
All right, let's get into. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm here as like a little bridge troll. Okay. <laughs> uh, last segment. Last segment. Okay. Uh, do you want to read this one or shall I? Uh, you go ahead, man. Okay. Hi, love hate relationship. Alex, I've got your pet question. Yes. Sort of. Boo. It's less to do with my pets and more to do with my neighbors. You lion mother. Okay. It's actually a really hard question. My girlfriend and I just moved into a new place together, and she's brought along with her a chow mix mutt named Dickie, after Little Dickie, who I assume you guys know. Andy, do you know Lil Dicky? Lil Dicky's going to come on this podcast as a problematic love at some point because I deeply love Lil Dicky and I cannot square the Chris Brown connection in my heart. Ooh, okay. We'll, we'll talk later. Um, okay, so Chow Mix Mutt named Dicky. He's great. She's great. We're doing great. The problem is that Dicky is really reactive, especially at night. And our neighbors have a brand new baby. So we've been in here a couple of weeks now, and an awful pattern has emerged. The baby cries at night, and Dickie hears it through the wall we share and starts barking. A lot. And high-pitched. And for a really long time. Long enough that our neighbors say that they're having trouble getting the baby back to sleep. My girlfriend says he should be fine once he adjusts to the new place, but I'm not sure how long that can take. Our neighbors haven't threatened to complain to the main office or anything yet, but have asked us a few times to try and get Dickie's barking under control. I'm trying to make my girlfriend happy, and her dog, who I do legitimately like a lot, but also help out these poor new parents and neighbors. So I guess that's like five relationships if you count the baby. Do you guys have any advice? Uh, this person did not leave us a name, Andy. Yeah, and so first of all, I was going to say, you've been clamoring for a pet-related question for a while. Did you have any pet-related name convention off the top of your head? Or do we even, do do we want to go the other way and go the five relationship route? (laughs) Oh, five way really? Oh, dear. I don't know. Like, if I was going to, I was going to immediately jump on, like, What's a pet-related something or other? Like, I immediately jumped to that the series of, you know, the 90s where they just put animals in shit randomly. So, you know, your Homeward Bounds, your Air Buds, your Beethovens. Beethoven? You want to yeah. do Beethoven? We can do Beethoven. All right, Beethoven. Let's see. Andy, you've had a pet before. I, I've had a a situation adjacent to this. In you've had a barky dog before too. I have had a barky dog before. It, it, it's it's tough, and and the easiest thing off the bat would be to just uh, not make it your problem. But you've decided it is, and so we'll try to help you go along the more difficult road here. It's very kind of you to be considerate of your new neighbors. You're not going to get the dog to stop barking. At least not for a couple weeks. If then, I mean, I, I, so I, I've grown up with pets all my life. I've had dogs all my life. And especially, you run the risk of there becoming a Pavlovian reaction here. 
I got to the point with my last dog, Smokey, no matter when my alarm went off, if it was at 7.30, if it was at 6.30, if it was at 4.30 in the morning because I had an extremely early call time, he would associate the sound with the sound of my alarm with a chance to be uh, taken out to go to the bathroom. So he would start barking his head off and would not stop until I took him out to go to the bathroom, no matter what time it is. So I know this isn't exactly your question, but I do want to just give some free advice here of be very careful of what you do with the dog to get it to stop barking because you will run the risk of training a behavior or showing the dog that if it ever wants that thing, it can just start barking its head off. Mm-hmm. If it's a little dicky, I'm assuming it's a he, so he can just start barking his head off. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know if the dog will get used to the sounds of the baby is, is, the, is the real sticky wicked here. Yeah. I mean, it's never going to be a regular thing. You yeah. Know? Um, I, so here's a practical thing you could do. Acoustic foam is relatively cheap. And if you have thin enough walls that you can hear your neighbor's baby or, or your dog can hear your neighbor's baby, maybe for at least a while, at least until the baby can reasonably sleep six hours a night, you're, you're communicating with this, with your neighbors well enough to like, I I feel like you could work with your neighbors on this and maybe line your apartment with acoustic foam, maybe line their apartment with acoustic foam, maybe line both your apartments with acoustic foam and see if that dampens the noise enough that everyone gets a little more quiet because your neighbors aren't falling asleep no matter what they have a newborn baby but if it's possible to make it so your dog cannot hear the baby that ends the sort of cyclical problem you wind up with where the dog is up because of the baby and now the baby is up because of the dog hmm okay acoustic foam I would laugh my ass off if the dog and or baby started chewing on the acoustic foam. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, maybe keep it maybe keep it out of uh, <laughs> baby and or dog reach, but Yeah. Um okay. Uh now Beethoven, I will be up fr- Oh, I'm sorry. Were you done, yeah. Andy? Okay, I'm a terrible interrupter. Very rude. Uh Beethoven, uh, I'll be up front with you. I am like a dog who has caught the car that he has been chasing. I realize that now that I have a pet question, I've never had a pet, and this was maybe a mistake. No, no, you, hold, 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 you, you fucking finish that Joker line, you son of a bitch. <laughs> we know what to do if I caught it. There we go. Now I can finish. Um... Oh God, Jesus! This is like this, this is like my Green Lantern thing. So Beethoven, I will be upfront with you. I shared your question with a former pet owner from my life, who, funny enough, said a thing or two that contradicted something that you said at the beginning of your answer, okay. Andy, which was 
that uh, and and, uh, and I promise I'm quoting here, but I've apparently you can in fact teach an old dog new tricks. Like it is possible. I, I like that you mentioned being careful not to reinforce the wrong behaviors here and to be very cautious in how you reinforce because from what I understand, it is possible to train a dog to be quiet during certain hours. And if you can positively reinforce that action, how escapes me? I've kind of, I was kind of just told a good trainer can show you how to do this, but apparently it is conceivably possible. I don't know how well trained Lil Dicky is. Your girlfriend seems to be pretty confident. Like you say here that she says he'll be fine once he adjusts to the new place. But then you you state that you're not sure how long that can take. Definitely talk to her about about that. Because, you know, if the dog takes a week or two to readjust, or you say that it's been a couple of weeks already, but if the dog takes, you know, six months to adjust, it's very good-hearted of you to worry about this for the kids, because the fa- the kid and your neighbors, because the fact of the matter is, it's fucking miserable with a newborn trying to get them to sleep consistently. Like, that, so much so, that's one of the questions... See, I have way more experience with newborns than I do with, <laughs> with dogs. Um... One of the first questions people ask, you know, after they see new parents and a baby after a few months, they say, you know, are they sleeping through the night? You know, at what point do they sleep through the night? There are parents who brag about their kids being able to sleep through the night very young. Like, that is a thing. But, you know, that really can't happen if Lil Dicky is, is waking the baby up. Um... I will say in practical terms, you you mentioned that the only interaction you've had with your new neighbors has been this whole doing it up with or where, where they ask you if you can control the dog. I like the idea of talking to the neighbors and seeing if there's something that can be done. For instance, if the baby's nursery shares a wall with you guys, is it possible to possibly move where you have little Dicky? Assuming that Lil Dicky doesn't like sleep in the bed with you, and the bed is a is on sharing a wall with the nursery, like could you move where Lil Dicky sleeps, and they can possibly move where the baby sleeps to opposite ends of the apartment? Is that something you could possibly coordinate? Can you find other ways to kind of just help out with this situation? Can you try and reassure them that you know the dog will calm down? I I don't know. I feel like there are your your acoustic foam solution is interesting as just a physical action to take, but I think first and foremost, um, the dog is going to be easier to train yeah. than the baby. That's just a fact. Especially if the baby is getting woken up by the dog, it's easier to train the dog to not react to the baby. Um, exposure therapy might be interesting. You know, get the dog in the room, whether it's with that baby or with other babies, and try and expose Lil Dicky to the sound of a baby crying and reassure him, no, that's not a sound you need to bark at. That's not something that needs to freak you out. That's not something to be afraid of. Andy, are Chow Mix's little dogs? Uh, I'd say medium size. Like, uh, small, small medium. Small size? medium. Okay. Because I'm trying to figure out if this is just a yappy, reactive dog or if it's, like, a trained guard dog. And I don't 
fucking know enough about dogs to comment. Um, um, you, 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 you met my dog. A chow mix is about the size uh, that Smokey was. Okay, so all right, Smokey barked like a he motherfucker. <laughs> he, like, he very much did constantly. Smokey barked so much that now sometimes if I react, if I if I encounter a dog who just barks, 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 barks desperately with no logic. In my head, I hear your voice going, Smokey! <laughs> Which is how you would call out yeah. to Smokey. Like, I recall this. Smokey, and, and Smokey lived his entire life barking like that, much, as far yeah. as I know. Yeah. So, I, I assume that if your girlfriend's confident that he will calm down, he will calm down. He will probably calm down sooner than the baby will. But definitely get together with your... If you can, if you're comfortable with it, if your neighbors are receptive, try and reconnoiter with your neighbors and see if you can find a solution. Because you, the neighbors haven't said, get rid of your dog. If they did, we would be having another yeah. conversation. We'd be like, okay, these are newborn parents. We understand you're stressed. Fuck you. We're not getting rid of the dog. It's another. It's a different conversation. They're not saying that. So I'm assuming they might be more receptive than not to going, okay, hey, let's brainstorm some solutions. Let's move sleeping spaces. Let's put down acoustic foam. Let's noise dampen. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Could you put, could you put Lil Dicky in like a different room with like a noise machine of some kind and could that possibly help drown this out or make things a little easier? Could they possibly have some kind of like noise machine that drowns out some of the barking? These are practical things you can do. And working with your neighbors, it also sounds like you're kind of nervous about them complaining. So if you've got an open stream of communication with them, they'll be less likely to complain because they know you're trying. You know, you're making an effort. It's commendable you're making an effort. Andy's right. You could just go, not my problem. This isn't my dog. I I like my girlfriend and I like that we're living together and the dog is fine most of the time, but this isn't my issue. This isn't my beef. You could say that. You're being a good person, Beethoven, and you're not doing that. Yeah, teamwork. But if you're going to own this, work with them. Teamwork is the key here. I think, I mean, I, so, so, so we've gone into detail about how my dog was not ever really well-trained in this specific regard. He, he barked and he barked loudly all his life. Um, but I believe, and don't quote me, do your own research on this, but I believe the key to training a dog to not bark at something is to straight up ignore them and you yourself not act like anything is wrong and you do that enough and the dog eventually kind of gets it. So that the, the conversion or not conversion, Jesus, the um, what's the word you use? The introduction therapy, Did conversion therapy? therapy. Okay. My bad. I don't know. I don't think you did, I don't know. That eh. anyway, that's a problematic phrase. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyway, uh, maybe maybe you can work with them. Exposure therapy? That's what, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exposure therapy. Thank you. Maybe you can use exposure therapy. Maybe you can team up with the uh, other couple. The fact, I mean, they do seem 
receptive to working together. I mean, this is an interesting way to develop a friendship, but there you go. Um, I, I think if everyone can agree that everyone's goal is to get sleep, people will be very willing to work together to make that happen. So yeah, I think, I think work with the other people. I think you, I think moving, um, where Dickie is and also maybe where the baby is, get them as far away from each other as possible. I like that idea a lot. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you just need something practical to do, acoustic foam isn't that expensive and it, it would be well worth the investment for the next, you know, two ish years of your guys's lives and your neighbor's lives. So I hope little Dickie also, I mean, behaves himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we both live in apartments. How do you deal with loud neighbors, Andy? I honestly, I think we're the loudest ones anywhere around us and we're on a third floor. We've got no one above it and it's really not a huge problem. So <laughs> I don't have to deal with loud neighbors. Ugh, I, I am the loud neighbor. Oh, I hate you more. <laughs> Next episode, my hate is Andy and his loudness. <laughs> no, you're fine. Um, Beethoven, we hope this helps, honestly. I mean, it sounds like there is there is no easy solution here, but hopefully we've given you some practical ideas. You know, don't be scared to reach out. You're gonna you're gonna be you can either interact with these neighbors to work towards a common solution, or you can interact with them when these poor, stressed out parents have to complain to you and or, you know, your building people or your apartment people in a negative sense. Have compassion. You sound like a compassionate person. So keep your compassion. Realize that it is harder for them than it is for you. And, you know, don't, don't be scared to kind of try and reach out. Okay. We're proud of you. Absolutely. You seem like a good-hearted person. Maybe in two years' time, you uh, you've got some new great friends, and that could be that's that's the positive, hopeful outlook I'm going to spin on this situation. But um, it's going to be a while. But I I very much hope that we get a a a, a second uh, update from you and find out how little Dickie and the baby are doing. Sounds great. Yeah. All right. You, uh, you good with that, Andy? I'm great with that, man. Um, so if, uh, if you have enjoyed our program, this has been love, hate relationship. If you have a relationship question, um, we kind of got the pet question. We kind of, broke that hump but if you have a pet yeah. question or if you have a work question if you have a neighbor question if you have a a relationship relationship question no matter what your question is we are happy and willing to help you work through that and give you our perfectly unqualified advice um you know you can email us at love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com and we promise we'll read them our show comes out every second and third Tuesday of the month, uh, so that is twice a month. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also tweet us at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D 
with your questions, and you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes. So we've been delightfully funny on there lately. I think so. We we try to keep the Twitter fun. You can follow us on there, and you know we uh, we didn't ask this for most of the first. 15 ish episodes, but we're really trying to get those, uh, those likes and reviews and comments. Those are incredibly helpful for us to help expand this show. And, you know, we, uh, we don't ever plan on making this anything other than free. So the least, um, I feel like we could ask for is if you throw us a five star on iTunes, or if you don't think we're worth a, a five star, DM us on Twitter and tell us how you think we could improve. You can follow. Yeah, we're open to hearing. Yeah, you can follow me, Andy Boel, at JovoCop two one one three on Twitter, and I'm at a underscore x underscore r u i z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you all for listening. We love you so much. Um, keep at it. Our, our numbers just keep growing. Uh, so yeah, and as always, please tell your enemies. Mm-hmm.